Hello and welcome to another edition of the FanRag Sports Premier League Podcast. I'm Elliot Niblock. Joining me today is Paulie Questel. Fortunately, we are once again without Seb, uh, who has a suspicious absence in the wake of devastating U.S. losses. I don't know. Maybe he's maybe he's a spy. He constantly does. <laughs> he constantly. He's always missing these games. Uh, or at, at least missing while you and I shout at each other uh, about how we are furious about the U.S. and then Seb sits quietly and twiddles his thumbs and dreams about Zlatan. But you know what? Sometimes we need someone to be there to say, look, I'm an outsider and I don't understand why Michael Bradley keeps playing. Yeah, <laughs> which is fair. I, it's funny because I watched this, the uh, abysmal game against Trinidad, which is, you, you know, everybody the, uh, keeps saying over and over, echoing that it's the worst loss in U.S. men's national team history, which, you know, it, that, that seems fair. Uh, but I was watching it with an Australian guy and he went from kind of poking fun to seriously anticipating, oh, God, we're probably going to have to play the U.S. in a qualifier to, oh, shit, I'm sorry, mate. I feel really bad for you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, the, the the view of an outsider can be helpful. I, I mean, I feel like we're going to need a lot of outsiders looking in to figure out the problems <laughs> that we come into the, here. So, you know, we spoke yesterday about – kind of the myriad of things that went wrong, like how Michael Bradley's kind of been left isolated. And so, you know, his flaws are laid bare even more. Um, But, you know, we haven't talked much about where we go forward from here. So, I I mean, Paul, is there anything like what jumps out at you above all else that, okay, in the wake of this devastating failure, what has to change? So, it's not so much what us I mean what us the change is the whole system the whole system and we and we've known this and we've had the warnings we've we've had the uh the warning shots that people keep saying and nothing's happened because um unfortunately the world it's not just US soccer on a macro level the world is more of a reactionary world than a proaction world you know uh airport security doesn't get it doesn't get uh really paid attention to until 9-11 happens. You know, there's always something that it should never have come to. Uh, and obviously, I'm not comparing this to 9-11 at all. You know, back onto the micro level, in every little which shape and form, like, changes don't happen until something happens that shouldn't have happened. And the whole system needs to change. And what I was thinking about today and what, I was, and what I'm now worried about is – Jurgen Klinsmann came into this team with a vision. Uh, he wanted to change the way that U.S. soccer was. He wanted to change everything about the program. He wanted to change the way we played. He wanted to change the way we looked at the game. He wanted to change everything. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say he was the savior or right, and he, had his, he definitely had his flaws as a manager. But he was um, right about some things as well. He was right about a lot of things. I think where Jurgen Klinsmann got lost was I think he had it right. I think he had it right in his head. And I think where he got lost was he couldn't figure out how to get what was in his brain communicated to other people. And that's why people sit here and say, well, did Jurgen Quinsman have a plan? I don't see any long-term plan. Or he goes out there and says, and let's be honest, I'm, 
I said it before the Mexico game, and I spoke to friends about it, and I said, hey, why aren't we playing a 3-5-2? That would make a lot of sense, and it's our best formation. He goes out there and says, that would make a lot of sense to go to Mexico. But maybe he had this vision of how we're going to play, and here's how it's going to work, but he failed to be able to take that from his brain and communicate it to everybody. And I think that's where he lost all the players. And I'm afraid of... We need a visionary like that. And I'm afraid that U.S. soccer will look at the Quinsman era and be like, whoa, that was a mistake. Let's not go down that road again. Well, you know, so I, I, I agree with you. And for me, the, the thing that's frustrating is that I think the view from 10,000 feet from Jurgen Klinsmann's perspective was spot on. Like the, the problems that he diagnosed with the youth development system in this country, the, you know, the, the notion that you have to be under pressure at club level in order to play well, and the clubs that have the most pressure are in Europe rather than MLS. I mean, I think that we agree there, too. The problem was in transitioning from that kind of, like, grander vision to, you know, how do we implement that in the day-to-day? You know, it reminds me of the South Park episode with the underpants gnomes, right? (laughs) Step one, you know, we know step one, collect underpants. Step two, step three, profit. And yeah. <laughs> he he's like, okay, step one, all this stuff is wrong. So now we're going to get... Uh, and then eventually we'll, you know, have a model similar to Die Mannschaft in Germany. And it's just the way that he went about trying to execute the vision that he had for revolutionizing the U.S. Soccer Federation. It, it just, it fell flat. And it's, again, I mean, you know, as we've been saying, this doesn't mean that he was wrong across the board. It just means that maybe he managed some games poorly. Certainly he managed some, you know, stretches of the calendar in terms of trying to strike a balance between developing youth and then also having a stable team in place. So, and, but, you know, I read a really interesting article yesterday about youth development and how the early 90s, from 1990 to 1994, and, or 1993, and then again in 1995— It's just a dark time. It's a completely dark period for the U.S. In all the years before that, of all the players born, people born in the United States, and it was focused on players born in the United States because people like Fabian Johnson and John Brooks, they didn't come up through the U.S. system. Players born in the United States, it was Mm -hmm. like going back to the 70s. You had pretty much about two to three guys every year um, who had staying power with the national team, you know, Born three guys born in 71, two guys in 72, but those guys contributed for years in the national team, which is a good number. There's hundreds of millions of kids and two or three getting there. Uh, that's a good number. But then from 90 to 93 and then again in 95, there's just no one. I think they have one player who yeah. like came up in that time. And is that a, de- is that because of the development is, you know, this is like a chicken or the egg thing is, did we not bring players in there because we missed the Olympics and we missed the U-17 World Cup? Or did we miss the Olympics and we missed the U-17 World Cup because we had crappy players at that time? Yeah. But the bottom line is, is those players would be 26, 27, 28 years old right now. And we don't have any players of that age on the roster. And that's why you're going to you're over relying on people on the wrong side of 30. You mm-hmm. hired a manager and I don't want to get back into this today, but you hired a manager that wasn't going to take any risks and plug in any kids. And this is where you end up. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's criminal that, 
yeah, this is the preaching to the choir, I know, but that players like Cameron Carter-Vickers and Matt Miazga haven't been bled earlier, right? Like, you need you need to give them games, you need to give I'm gonna, them capped. I'm going to, I'm going to, I, I, look, I hate the fact that Cameron Carter-Vickers wasn't capped last year in the 4 nothing loss against Costa Rica. I guess mm-hmm. it was more important to give Graham Zuzzi that, those 18 minutes of play. I'm going to give him a pass on that because he has stunk this year. Uh, he played in Tottenham's preseason, which is preseason, and he was pretty bad. He's on loan at Sheffield. I don't know what he's doing. Matt Miazga is inexcusable yeah. because Matt Miazga outgrew the MLS two years ago, and now he can't get a look. And you could have said, well, he went to Chelsea and he wasn't playing. Okay, he's not match fit. He's in the Dutch league right now. Mm-hmm. Say what you want about the Dutch league. He's playing 90 minutes a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, say what you want about the Dutch league, but – why is Walker Zimmerman getting calls over him? Yeah. Matt Miazga outgrew MLS. Walker Zimmerman did not. And I think that's where it starts. U.S. soccer and, and the MLS need to understand that they are two different entities. And the manager, if he doesn't want his players playing in the MLS, and, you know, he says to some, if, like, let's, for argument's sake, let's say John Brooks says, I'm going to sign with the Chicago Fire. Whoever we hire as a manager ha- should be able to say, John, you are welcome to do that. And if that's the uh, if that's the move that you want to make because you're either his father or his mother's family is from Chicago, if that's the move you want to make, that's fine. And no one's going to stand in your way of your decision. But I'm not going to call you up to the national team. Well, unless I'm, your game really – unless I mean, I'm going to give you your chances. Yeah. But if your game drops off, I'm going to drop you. Yeah. And, I mean, I think that – I was talking to one of my good friends about this earlier today. And he's – I mean, you know, I'm – I'm the Timbers Army. Like, I I support MLS. I consume its product regularly, and I'm happy that it's there, and I want it to get better. But I also think that although conversations about youth academies and developing young players in the United States is necessarily, at some level, related to, if not entirely yoked, to development academies that are connected to the MLS League, not talking about U.S. soccer development and talking about, like, it does not mean that you are 100% have to talk about the MLS all the time, right? Like, talking about how we scout players, setting up academies, you know, the the idea that youth academies have to be, I mean, the youth academies in this country so frequently, like, they've we've lived without a top-tier soccer league for so long that the idea of having an academy that is both an elite youth football academy and is also tied to a professional club, I mean, it was laughable, right? Like, and the MLS is still not anywhere close to the top leagues in Europe, right? It's it, it's not close. I mean, maybe and maybe as good as League One, it could be pushing halfway towards the championship by a decade from now, but it's just tricky because... It is best if you're tied to a professional format, but so many of the academies in the United States for so long, the goal has been we're going to get you to a level where you can get a scholarship to go to a Division I NCAA program, which, you know, on some level, that's great. Good. I'm all for education. But that is not an elite development academy. It's no, not but- an elite level to be playing at when you're 18, 19, 20 years old in this sport. Right. Well, and that's it's also a difference. Like, is the NCAA good for grooming talent into the MLS? Sure. It's not good for the national team. And you guys have to separate each other. Yeah. There is nothing wrong with the national team manager 
wanting his players to play in Europe. There is simultaneously nothing wrong with MLS wanting to capitalize on popularity of players like Michael Bradley and after the last World Cup, Graham Zuzzi and Matt Beasler and offering them and rewarding them with big contracts because they can market them and sell tickets. There's nothing wrong with that. If that's how you feel you're going to grow the league, there's nothing wrong with that. But you guys have to stop acting like you're the same thing. If, if the manager says, I want my players playing in Europe, MLS can't sit there and go, whoa, what? why would you say that? We have a great league. Some of your World Cup players were in the MLS. Graham Zuzzi played, grew up in the American system. He went to college. He played in the MLS. He hit that corner that John Brooks scored on. Like, yeah, cool. I'm not saying that no MLS players can contribute. Mm-hmm. They they absolutely can. I mean, but an MLS the more player got to the U.S. out of the World Cup scoring for penalty. Right. The, yeah. Like, the, the more players you have playing in Europe, the better the team is going to be. And I went on a, a big thread on Twitter today, and I, not an argument, but, uh, like, reasonable discussion with people, which is insane considering that the U.S. men's national team usually causes a lot of hatred on Twitter, and yeah. I am easy to set off. And I just said, the issue is complacency. Michael Bradley, you know, Michael Bradley, Matt Beasler, Graham Zuzzi, they're not going to get dropped from their teams because their teams have invested so much money in them. And, and what I said was there's a reason that Sir Alex Ferguson had four strikers in his team and had six central midfielders. It wasn't for injury cover. It's make sure that you are fighting for your place in the team every single week. You know, Wayne Rooney got dropped from the team when the team went to play Real Madrid at the Bernabeu in the Champions League. Every player that walked into that dressing room was droppable. Every player had to fight and prove why they should be in the team. You don't have that in the MLS, and it's bad on both Jurgen Klinsmann and Bruce Arena for making certain players feel undroppable for the U.S. because it breeds complacency. Well, and yeah, I mean, it's the, ca- it's the problem is that it's it becomes an echo chamber, right? Like it is the you're undroppable at the club level because everybody saw you play in the World Cup three years ago. And so you're a quote unquote big name for a lot of these teams. And then you're undroppable for the national team because who knows why? There's, there's no legitimate reason, right? Like and if you're the, selling tickets and selling jerseys at the ML, at the club level, fine, whatever. That's okay. Like make that cash cow. It's a capitalist world. You're, you're in it to make money. But I mean, here's the reason that, the, that, that you're undroppable. Name me right now. Who's going to play instead of Michael Bradley? You can't come up with a name. And the reason for that is because we literally haven't seen anyone else get a chance. Yeah. And in every friendly and in every, in every match, you know, it was always – Bradley was always starting. And finally it was like, here we go. Here's the gold cup where Bradley's not going to get called in and we're going to see what we have. And maybe Kellen Acosta and someone else can step into that. And what happens? He plays Alejandro Bedoya there, who we know is not the long-term solution. Yeah. And after the group stage, Bedoya, gets, uh, Bedoya doesn't get sent home, but Bradley comes in, and then Bradley's right back there. So we can't answer – you know, we can't answer – he's undroppable from the national team because we don't have anybody else because we, don't, we never gave him a chance. We don't know who, who could be our next goalkeeper because at the Gold Cup, we played Brad Guzon and Tim Howard. Yeah. We don't – you know, we keep saying – people keep saying no one's pushed Bobby Wood out the door. And that's why, you know, Josie Outdoor and Bobby Wood keep starting. Bobby Wood's been fantastic nearly every time he plays. He's even better when he plays with Quinn Dempsey. Injuries and for whatnot have allowed Outdoor to keep playing, and then they play a crappy team. He scores a bunch of goals. And 
you keep doing that. When was the last time we saw Bobby Wood line up as a as a lone striker in a 4-3-3 or a 4-3-2-1? We've never seen that. We only see Josie Altidore do it, and he can't get the job done. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an issue that we're going to be talking about for a long time coming, unfortunately. The bottom line is you have to bring in someone who can who has – in fact, it starts with your president and your technical director right there have to be on the same page. Come up with a vision for what kind of team you want and who you want. Hire a coach that shares that vision. But no matter what now, if it doesn't work, if the coach loses the team or something, you don't abandon the plan. What really hurt us right now is that whatever Jurgen Klinsmann's plan was, we abandoned it when we when we went back and and hired Bruce Arena. So when if the coach runs its course, or you know, if if in four years he does really well and he gets a better job, or if it's just not working out and we part mutually, or if we have to fire him, don't abandon the plan because at least the guys above him still have that vision. Yeah. So well, that's what you need to come up with. I mean, really, the uh, the only silver lining here for the United States is we've certainly got a long time before we play another competitive match for the U.S. men's national team. So there's some time to figure that out. We'll be back uh, after this short break, and we will get our sights back into the English Premier League. And we're back. Uh, Before we get into the English Premier League, we have to talk about a couple of teams that are certainly full of quality players, some of whom play in the Premier League, but the... uh, as much as we want to continue lamenting the United States missing out on the World Cup, the South American qualifiers were full of equal, if not even greater, drama on the final day as Argentina went down one to nothing to Ecuador and stormed back to fire their way into the World Cup on the back of a Messi hat trick. Uh, you know, people have been calling for Messi to step up at the international level for ages. He really could not have done so more emphatically than he did on Tuesday. Well, also remember a year ago, he was retiring from the Argentinian national team (laughs) after the Copa America. I mean, it's... That was his Michael Jordan playing baseball thing. Right. You (laughs) undersold what was going on on Tuesday by a long shot. I don't think I can sell it any better because I couldn't even look at the table and figure out all the permutations for what might happen in all these games. It was absurd. All the different... All the different things. And pretty much all I, all I remember is that Argentina was on the outside looking in. Chile was, I think, in, but I think they were in the playoff spot. They might have been in fourth, but everybody was tied on points, kind of. And it was just goal differential separating them. Chile had one issue, and that's they had to play Brazil in Brazil. Argentina were needed to win and get help. And 40 seconds in, they go behind. And Leo Messi just puts the team on his back and single-handedly books himself a trip to the World Cup. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. And then was, on the other side, and then on the other side, you get Chile, they lose to Brazil. So the team that won the Copa America two years in a row was in the Confederations Cup, now not do, now losing to Brazil they, and after really screwing up and qualifying all the time. They needed Colombia to beat Peru, I believe is what happened. And... Yeah, and then Colombia scores against Peru. So all of a sudden, even even if they're losing, Chile are going to remain ahead of Peru, and they're going to get into the World Cup. And then later on, you get a Peru equalizer, 
And with like 10 minutes to go in the game, you get Radamel Falcao walking around to all the Peruvian players saying, hey, guys, let's cut this out. If, if the game ends 1-1, we're both good. And Falcao <laughs> admitted it. He admitted it today that he did have those conversations with the Peruvian players. Like, hey, guys, don't score. We don't score. Everybody goes to Russia. And, and oh, Chile God, gets, that's gross. And Chile gets bounced. And let me tell you something. The bar I was at in New York City was the U.S. men's national team supporters bar, and it was also the Chilean fans supporters bar. Oh, boy. And Nobody's happy I there. I can tell you by like 9.45 p.m., there was not a single worse place to be in New York City. <laughs> I, oh. That bar, I mean, it, literally, you're, you're talking about two teams where and, – and one of my good friends is Chilean-American, and he sent a text – saying six of the seven results that I needed did not go my way. And that was the only possible way that the, both the U.S. and Chile could have gotten Yeah, and it. like not just six of the seven, but that particular permutation of them as well. Ex- exactly. Like literally. Like, do you know what the odds of that happening were? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Paul Cardin, like, I wish somebody would have, would have given me odds on that and said, hey, you want to throw a dollar down on – the U.S. and Chile not making it because these things happen. Like I would have won a million dollars. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I feel the same way. Well, one of the things, you know, we corresponded about already is Chile missing out on the world cup means that Arsenal forward soon to be perhaps not an Arsenal forward. Alexis Sanchez will finally, finally have a summer off for the first time in about half a decade. Uh, no, he didn't play in the last, confederations cup no he did in the 2000 uh in the one in brazil no argentina was in that no, no, or something no. See, I, th- I thought you meant the, the most recent one yes yeah no no, no the, yeah so i get yeah so well he's he's been involved in summer tournaments i guess four years running now so almost yeah. half a decade yeah. <laughs> half a decade sounds a lot longer uh well you know that's that's what rhetoric it's is the for. end of the day elliot you can't make me do math uh yeah, I mean, it's from an Arsenal point of view, it's frustrating. But obviously, as you were just saying, citing your friends and bar compatriots, it's much more frustrating for Alexis Sanchez. And yeah, as you pointed out, like yeah, it is annoying that he'll finally have a rest, and he's most likely, not certainly, but most likely, not going to be an Arsenal player. But you still got to. I think I probably have more sympathy considering the U.S.'s recent fate. Um, but nonetheless, you know, we should move on to talk about Alexis and all of the other players. Club I mean, teams. when you say that though, when you just for one last point, when you say that, you know, Alexis, obviously the most disappointed, that's, it's almost like what brings me solace here is, you know, no one will have to live with what the U S players now have to live with. And I think that's almost as bad of a punishment as we can give them other than the fact that we shouldn't call them up to the national team anymore is, you know, every night that Michael Browley goes to sleep now, for the rest of his life, he's going he's gonna to be having nightmares yeah. about missing out on the World Cup. And knowing this was his last one, mm-hmm. definitely his last one. Uh, he's just he's too old. And, but I think the microcosm of this was, you know, who on the U.S. like missed out on the World Cup because of this? And I really couldn't come up with any answer. Like, you know... Kyle Beckerman went to the 2014 World Cup, and he knew that was going to be his only World Cup. Mm -hmm. Jermaine Jones likely knew that was going to be his only World Cup. 
everybody else, it might have been their last World Cup, but uh, like if 2014 might have been their last one, or this one might have been their last one, but they played in 2014. You know, like DeAndre Yedlin has played in one already. You know, what player ha- is now going to miss out on that lifelong dream because they didn't qualify? And, you know, you look at the field, at who we had on the field, and what is it, like Kellen Acosta, Christian Pulisic, Bobby Wood were the only ones that hadn't played in the World Cup before? Mm-hmm. They're, and, they're, they're I mean, young. They'll play in one. Yeah, you know, well, assuming that they don't <laughs> screw up, they'll play in one. And I think that, you know, the last uh, last thing that we'll touch on here is that the, uh, another thing that we can hope, and this is really grasping at straws to find that upside, but, you know, if if this fires up these players, especially those young players that you just mentioned, Christian Pulisic, obviously first and foremost among them, to you know, play with that much greater drive, that much more of a chip on their shoulders, great. But for all of the reasons that we've talked about in the first half of the show, clearly some structural changes need to be made in order to stoke the flames of that fire that this should light underneath all of those players. Yep, and like I said, and we'll transition here, I still hate this sport, and now I have to gear up for the biggest game of the season. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, the, the headliner uh, the headliner that is certainly anxiety-producing from, you know, whether you're at Anfield or the Theater of Dreams, whoever you support, Liverpool, Manchester United. Um, it's the fixture for us, the infuriatingly from a North American standpoint, early fixture, uh, 7.30 Eastern, 6.30. Well, there's a reason for that. Okay. Tell me, tell me why I'm going to be waking up at the crack of dawn to watch things at Anfield. There are certain fixtures that for police and alcohol reasons are always held earlier in the day so that people don't have the opportunity to be drinking all day. That's a fair I, point. I believe, That's a fair I point. believe the North London Derby is one of them. Um, and Manchester United-Liverpool is definitely one of them. That game is usually the – it's usually 8.30 on Sunday. But this time, I guess, it's on Saturday. Because I think it's usually on 8.30 on Sunday because their hopes are that, like, everybody will be drinking all day Saturday, that they'll just be too drunk and hungover <laughs> on Sunday. So I guess now, like – I guess if you wake up early, you can get really rowdy. It's only been in recent years where, like, Manchester Derbies and last year the Manchester United-Liverpool game were held on Monday nights. And I believe each time that that happened, like, alcohol sales in the entire city were banned all day. So certain fixtures are always played early for police reasons. Yeah, which is, I think, entirely fair. Um, But regardless, I'm annoyed because this is... uh, this is must-see TV from a footballing standpoint, and it means I'm going to be up at 6 a.m. It's the most watched game in the world. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, and I, I, I don't know if it still is, but I know in, like, 2010, it was, it was available in more countries than any other fixture mm-hmm. in club football. Well, and the TV ratings consistently for these Premier League fixtures that the, the uh, creme de la creme, the premier, if you will, the top six inter- rivalry fixtures regularly rival u.s american sport playoff games for their television ratings but liverpool manchester united even more so so you know paulie we're coming off of an international break liverpool have coutinho back they're playing at home do you think that they can reasonably be considered even even money 
if not favorites at home against a Manchester United team that is undefeated on top of the table, even on points with City behind only on goal difference? My gut answer is no. What is the actual line here? They are not favored. Mm-hmm. Um, are United, are slim, United are slim favorites, I assume. United are plus 160, Liverpool are plus 170. Um, and that draw is juicy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Here's the bad news for everybody that's going to wake up early. And it's not what you want to hear, but this game's going to suck. And it comes around, and we spoke about this last year when they played out a really boring nil-nil draw. And that is, Jose Mourinho in his head is obsessed with keeping a clean sheet at Anfield. And last year he went into this game and that was his priority. Keep a clean sheet at Anfield and like maybe if we get a chance to score, maybe we'll capitalize on it and and sneak out of here with a win. But more importantly, keep a clean sheet. Sadio Mane is hurt for Liverpool, which is the saving grace for United because Paul Pogba's out and Romelu Lukaku missed his last missed the two games with Belgium because he's hurt. He played apparently he picked up this injury before the Crystal Palace game, played through the pain against Crystal Palace, and he was terrible. He was absolutely awful. And if that injury hasn't recovered, he'll probably be bad again. But I can tell you this, Jose Mourinho is going to play him. Yeah. So, and I never, ever, ever thought I would say this, but not having Marijuana Fellaini in this game is going to be a bad thing for United. Woo! Never Boy, would have thought I would say that. From your perspective, that is a hot take. <laughs> well, let me, let, me qua- let me throw in a... A qualifier here. Okay. Marijuana Fellaini on the form that he was in before the international break. <laughs> if we got that right, Marijuana Fellaini in, I would feel good about this game. Uh, but if we got the other Marijuana Fellaini, then I would feel, you know, just as I would feel like, okay, he's there because he's there just to be dirty and muck this game up. And that's what Jose is going to do. They're going to come out in a 9 1 formation with. Nine guys in the box, Lukaku up the field. Maybe Rashford will get forward to support him. Um, I wouldn't be shocked to see both Daly Blind and Ashley Young in the team. And Ander Herrera will be running around central midfield, fouling everyone in his that comes close to him. And it's only a matter of is he going to pick up two yellows or will he manage to do it in a way where somehow he avoids a second yellow. Yeah. Well, and I mean, from a neutral perspective obviously it would be nice to see the you know Liverpool has been schizophrenic for a while now but and they can be the the flat do nothing team or they can be that side that comes out flying and hits four goals but I think that from a tactical perspective then we should probably I mean mean, applaud Jose Mourinho for being obsessed with that, just keep a clean sheet at Anfield, right? Like, obviously, it's nobody's favorite tactics. Generally, I know that both you and Seb, and even me from a neutral perspective, or trying to be as neutral as I can, have praised Jose Mourinho for saying, you know what, he's playing far more open, fluid, attacking football than he ever has. So, I I don't know. I mean, do, do you think that that is tactically prudent? I mean, this is one of, look, when we, when you play Swansea and you're playing defensive and you're not attacking and everything, and and that's what we've been looking like the last three, four years, and that's what Seb and I have been complaining about, 
when you play Liverpool, especially like as a United fan, I don't know if you feel this way against Arsenal, maybe you, uh, against Tottenham. Maybe you do, maybe you don't, because for a long time you always beat Tottenham. Yeah. But uh, losing to Liverpool, losing to City, that sucks a lot. Oh, yeah. Uh, when, when that game happens, my fist is, like, shoved inside my mouth. My butthole is so tight. <laughs> I'm not worried about tactics. I'm worried about make sure Liverpool have a zero there and, and get us a number that's not zero. Yeah. Uh, does it suck? Yeah. Uh, last year after the game, my friend who's a Liverpool fan texted me and he just said, I'm really just pissed off because like I cut out of work early, ran home to watch this game, and Jose Mourinho had no intention of staging a soccer match tonight. And I think it's going to be the same thing. I think yeah. he's going to come in and be like, I have no intention of staging a soccer match. Now, as we saw last year, Coutinho, he's a great player. And in one moment, he can, make, he can be the difference. David De Gea made an unbelievable save to keep that game nil-nil. And he does bring that to the team. Great player. That's huge that Liverpool have him, but as we've seen this year and last year, when Sadio Mane gets hurt, that team falls apart. Yeah. Well, we will uh, we'll find out bright and early Saturday morning. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back for our scoring predictions for this weekend's fixtures. And we're back. Uh, Seb, although in absentia for the recording today, is actually here with us in prediction land. So he has predicted a 2-1 victory for Manchester United, uh, as opposed to our conversation here, expecting a gritty affair with a goal, maybe none. Then, uh, Pauly, I mean... Guys, you got to... Man, you and Seb. Scores! Where are we in the scores? I know you want to blow it over because you were terrible two weeks ago, (laughs) and you were terrible three weeks ago, but... Like at least give Seb his due because he's he's been on a heater. Yeah, that's it's true. The I am I am sitting in the Seb place, the uh, the Seb relegation territory. But you know we're all friendly here. Nobody's getting relegated with forty two points. Seb is in second, full seven points ahead of me with forty nine. And Paulie, you are in the lead with fifty five. Yeah, that, that just well, yeah. Last week was big because it was very close last week, and then Seb and I kind of. We, we added some distance, but what was it, that last game that, like, really gave me uh, a big lead, I guess? Yeah, just my Sunday last week with Arsenal yep. hitting that on the head, hitting Everton on the head, and hitting Newcastle, getting the draw. It was much oh, needed man. after was... it was much needed after that one-point performance I had a few weeks back. Yeah. Uh... I my scores in the month of October, <laughs> my, September, 10-1, 10-13, which is the outlier there. And now we're in that you got to zag when you when you want to zig week again. So let's get this going. All right, Liverpool, Manchester United. Seb's got a, a comparative goal fest, given all of the things that we've just talked about, with a two-one victory for the Red Devils. What do you think, Polly? Uh, I'm going nil-nil. <laughs> I'm going nil-nil. Prove me wrong. Score some goals. I'm not going to bet the under like I did with the U.S. game, which added insult to injury in that. But I, but no. I might, I might bet the draw. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that. I think that Coutinho gets that, you know, De Gea doesn't make that brilliant save. He gets the goal, 1-0 Liverpool. So we're, we've got the full, this full spectrum on this one. All righty. All right, Burnley, West Ham. Uh, Seb has a 1-0 Burnley victory. Uh, I mean, it's in their current form and going in to, I mean, Burnley at home, they're, they're always tough to play against at Turf Moor. So... I'm gonna I'm gonna pick with Seb on this one. One nil. 
I hate the fact that they're playing West Ham. That really, really sucks. But you got to zag when, when people zig. And Burnley's home form has not been great this year. I can't pick West Ham to win, so I'll just go 1-1. Yeah, that's yeah, that's fair. All right, we've got bottom, almost not even bottom feeders, but like you know those the bacteria and algae that live slightly below the surface of the river. Crystal Palace. Apologies to Palace fans out there, but come on, you guys, you guys got to do something to prove to me that you're not going to sit. You're already giving. You're already talking more about <laughs> Palace than we deserve. Pick a score. Let's uh, yeah. go. Uh, Chelsea. You know, last time you guys both picked four nil. For Manu, and then I was kicking myself. I only gave him three. I'm gonna again go with Seb. Four nil Chelsea. You gotta zag when the other people zig. It's the week after the international break. Weird things happen. Palace wins two nil. No, not in this game. <laughs> Four nil. <laughs> I'm not even picking Palace to score until they show me that they can do that. Yeah. All right. Manchester City versus Stoke. Of course, Manchester City with striker Sergio Aguero having. Uh, Injured his ribs in an automobile accident. Uh, he he did play or practice. Excuse me. He um, is light trained, lightly yeah, trained. I so don't, he's on. The, it won't be a long term injury. But I don't. I mean, I still expect him to miss at least two fixtures. Certainly this one. Uh, they're gonna handle Stoke. But even though last time with the other Manchester club, I kicked myself for going one less. I'm gonna stick to my guns and say three one. Manchester City. Give Stoke a goal. Why not? I was thinking about giving Stoke a goal, but you did, so I don't have to. 2 0. <laughs> ah, yeah, 2 0. All right, then we've got Tottenham versus Bournemouth. I almost made the, uh, the mistake there of saying at White Hart Lane, but of course it isn't because they are homeless this season. Uh, I mean, you can't. You can't pick anything other than a Tottenham victory. This time I'm going to do one better than Seb. 3-0 Spurs. I'm trying to figure, like, Bournemouth are terrible. So am I zagging if I pick them to get a result here? Or am I zagging if I pick Tottenham to win because they can't win at Wembley? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I honestly... I felt I had to go one or the other, but a 1-1 draw is not unthinkable in this one, right? Because Tottenham is... That's what I'm going to go with. I'm, I'm already so. upset. All right, so we're, I'm already setting this up through five games now to either put a lot of distance between myself and you guys or be in a lot of trouble. <laughs> I mean, it's early, so you might as well swing for the fences when it's in June. <laughs> yeah, it's true. All right, so we've got Swansea-Huddersfield next. Um, the Fortunately for these clubs, they are both... I mean, Swans are currently in a relegation place. Uh, Huddersfield are clear, and they've started relatively strong, but they're only, what, four points ahead of Swansea at this point? I mean, this is one that I really think could go either way. It really can. I, you know, Seb's got a 1-1 draw, we should say. Um, I'm, even though he is ahead of me at this point, this season, I'm wary of picking on the same lines as Seb, but that seems accurate. Seb's hot. Yeah. Yeah. We'll we'll go with the Seb form. 1-1. God, I was going to pick a draw too, but now I don't want to. (laughs) Like you said, swing on the fences. Uh, Yeah. And you know what? I'm going to go 1-0... 
to Huddersfield. Haven't won a game since August. That'll change. Huddersfield don't concede goals either. Yeah, and Swansea aren't great at scoring them either. So, well, the uh, the evening fixture on Saturday is Watford playing host to Arsenal. Seb has a two-one victory on the books. I, gosh, I'm, I almost, you know, the the self-deprecating, self-hating football fan in me on the heels of this historic loss from the U.S. almost wants to pick Watford for the upset. But I don't think that that's going to happen. I mean, you know, we talk a lot about Mesut Ozil having the international hangover on this show. He doesn't have that. They've qualified. He's got to start playing for a place in the team. Alexis Sanchez, although I'm sure distraught at Chile missing the World Cup, is a consummate professional. Arsenal win this game 3-1. to one. I let you go there because it's Arsenal, but you and Seb are just... Whew, really bad at just getting to the point and making your pick. Um, like, <laughs> Wait, I'm really bad at... We didn't talk really about the Premier at, League on this show. We've got to at least, like, get around the fixtures a little bit. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm really bad at talking too much earlier in the show. You guys, <laughs> on the back end, 2-1 uh, to Arsenal. I wanted to I want to go with Watford because I want a zag here, but I'm going to play it safe and, and go with Arsenal. They are in great form. So Brighton and Hove, Albion play host to Everton. Um, Seb's got a 1-1 draw. I mean, Everton are in such crap form that I want to do the zag thing by picking the gulls, but I'm not even sure that that's <laughs> that much of a difference. So maybe I'll pick, you know, against Everton's form and give them a 2-1 victory. Give them the... Wait, um... Everton, 2-1 two, two Everton. You just stole my pick. You stole my pick. I'm, I'm still sticking with it, but uh, yeah, two to one to Everton. Actually, no, you know, two nil to Everton. Tomer Hemet is suspended, so I don't know where Brighton are getting their goals from. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Uh, Southampton, Newcastle. Seb's got two one to the potentially going to be relegated for tax evasion, Newcastle. <laughs> I feel like that's always. It seems like a perennial sword hanging above St. James Park, but we'll talk more about that in the next show. Um, I don't, I I don't see Newcastle winning this. Uh, I'm not sure I'd see the Saints either, though. No, I'm going to give it to them. Mm, 2-0. 2-0 Southampton. I almost wanted to do that. Whoops, that's me. I almost wanted to do that for all the aforementioned zigging and zagging reasons. <laughs> and because I think Newcastle right now are like the sexy team. Everybody's like, oh, they're good. They're good. They're not good. No. But Southampton are really bad at home. And Newcastle are not great away from home. I'll go 1-1. One, one. All right. And finally, we have... God, Lest- this is going to be either a disaster for me this week or like unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was going to say you're going to put a lot. You're going to have a lot of daylight or maybe none at all. If I get eight games right, if I get six games right, like you guys are screwed. <laughs> uh, Monday nights at the King Power Stadium, Leicester City host West Brom. I, 
So Seb here, again, has a 1-1 draw. No, I'm... I think Leicester City are going to come out and take this pretty handily. I mean, they're not going to blow the doors off them, but 2-0 seems right. Oh. You know, I'm going to go with you, but I'll go 1-0 just because I don't want to pick another draw. I'm also logical fallacy here, but I picked too many 1-1s, so I am revising my pick on Tottenham <laughs> versus Bournemouth, and I am going 2-2. To each of them because oh, but Bournemouth can't score. Bournemouth can't score right, we're, two goals. We're score. We're sticking with one-one. <laughs> All right, uh, that's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. As always, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm Keats was better. Paulie is P Questel. Give FanRag Sports a follow as well, and we will be back next week with the U.S. Men's National Team disaster at least a little further in the rear view, and we can talk about some Premier League football on the books once more. Thank you.